stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present. And also recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance, and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, connecting to the natural world through birds. Something that I love about birds is their capability to exhibit the train of altruism. This means that certain birds engage in behaviours that help other birds, but hurt their own ability to survive and produce offspring. An example was found in a 2022 study by the University of the Sunshine Coast, where magpies who had trackers attached for scientific research later assisted each other in removing the devices. This was called cooperative rescue behaviour. The birds put themselves in perceived danger to help free each other. Other examples of altruistic tendencies are cooperative breeding and using alarm calls, all of which has been found to assist in the growth of bird populations. I think that, given the human tendency to prioritise self-gain, we could look to birds to remind ourselves that being giving and wanting to help others is completely natural. This is all to say that I think birds are pretty neat. And I'm excited to bring you some audio pieces from producers who feel the same way. First up, sit back and relax as we treat you to a beautiful soundscape of birdsong. Thank you. 
That piece was produced by Sebastian Fijak. You might remember a story we recently shared about blue gropers. In the next story, Amelia returns to take us on an avian adventure to show that natural wonders might be closer to home than we think. So many birds, but the one that keeps eluding me is the rose-crowned fruit dove. It's a rainforest bird. It's likely to be quiet high up in the canopy. Um, it's beautifully um, colored, but well hidden. And I've tried so many times. If there's one bird in the wild that I really want to see, it has to be the kakapo parrot from New Zealand. They're just like these green chunky flightless birds that live really slow lives and they only reproduce every four years. I need to meet one before I die. I think it has to be the lyrebird. I think they're just absolutely amazing the way they mimic other birds. Plus they're so magnificent with that long beautiful tail that they have. The painted snipe. The painted snipe is a, a water bird that lives in the swamps and marshes and back in the 90s when I first started bird watching there was one on the Hawkesbury River that people were going to see and I went to see it and all these people were saying they could see it and I couldn't. And since then I've never had an opportunity to see one and they're becoming so rare I doubt if I will but it's always a hope that one day the painted snipe will be on my list. If you're a person who loves birds there's probably at least one bird that you haven't seen in the wild but very much want to. For me, it was the powerful owl, the largest owl in Australia. Last summer, I set out to see a type of fish, the blue groper, for the first time. I'd read about them as a kid, but had never made the effort to see one. So I asked around for advice about where to spot them, learnt about their habitat and habits from marine biologists, and set out to the beach with this new knowledge. My wild fish chase was a success, and I've been snorkeling to see the blue groper again and again since. But the powerful owl is not the easiest bird to spot. In Indonesian, the word for owl is burung hantu, which translates to ghost bird. Nothing like a large, bright blue fish. And while my sleeping pattern is more night owl than early bird, I knew I didn't really want to be setting out at midnight to find a well-camouflaged creature in the dark. That's where the birdwatching community, aka my fellow bird nerds, come in. My partner and I, I, I kid you not, whenever we see, I'm, we love all birds, but if we see a new bird, it doesn't matter if it's something that we expected to see, that we didn't want to see, we get so excited we've turned and bumped right into each other, like smack, or I'll drop my binoculars. I'll Stephanie drop, Chambers is one of the co-founders of Sydney Bird Club, along with her partner Amy. I asked Stephanie about her first time seeing a powerful owl. Well, the very first time was at the Botanic Gardens. When I moved here from the U.S., I was on a tourist visa, and so I, and before working at the Botanic Gardens, I volunteered there. And I remember talking to one of the volunteers just sort of in my first days, and she's just a keen birder, has been birding for years and years. And she said, oh, would you like to see a powerful owl? 
And I mean, like you could have scraped my jaw off the floor. So she just took me straight to see the powerful owl. And I mean, I think anyone who sees a powerful owl for the first time just remarks on how large they are. Even though you know they're going to be large, in person, they're so much larger than you think. They're beautiful. The first powerful owl I saw was before, long before I was a bird watcher, and I was on a greyhound bus going up to Queensland and talking to the driver of the night as it was going along, and the owl spread eagled itself across the windscreen of the bus. <laughs> and then dropped down under the bus. Yeah, okay. it was gone. And we were astounded. That's we? quite an introduction. Said, that was big. What was that? Yeah. It was only later I was kind of looking up trying to work out what it was. Yeah, and you saw the shape of the chevrons on the breast. I yeah. thought it had those markings. Yeah, that was a powerful owl, yeah, the biggest one in Australia. This is Graham, a bird watching volunteer at Centennial Park. And Centennial Parklands published an article earlier in August this year about their resident pair of powerful owls. I thought this was an excellent first lead, and Graham kindly agreed to meet up at Centennial Park to answer my burning questions about the owls. Powerful owls, they, uh, they hunt through the trees, looking for food in the trees, which is largely the animals, larger marsupials, the possums of different types, uh, the fruit bats, they'll uh, feed on them. There's a colony in the park here. They'll take larger birds, cockatoos, magpies, Anything, uh, I think there's been reports they've even taken lyre birds. One of the things we've found in the park is uh, they've found rat remains in their, in their pellets. Pellets are little like fur balls that cats have that contain the bones and fur they can't digest and they'll bring them up and spit them out onto the ground. And we've found the remains of rats and things in there. We've seen them with dead rats. And we've had to approach the park asking that they don't use rat poisons for control of rats in around the cafes. They're the, like an apex, apex predator in the, the natural old growth forests. So they're in the, the eucalypt forests, mainly the, the wetter type of eucalypt forests along the coasts. And they, uh, they tend to get into the, um, the gullies in the, the hills and mountains, and that's their preferred habitat. So they're usually up in the, the tall eucalypts. And uh, in the park, we don't have any of that. So this is why these in Centennial Park, the owls are significant because they've moved into an urban environment which is totally urban. It's nothing like their, their natural habitat. And here, their main roosting sites we've found have been in paperbark trees when they're nesting, uh, in introduced pine trees. They like to nest, get up into them, not nest in them, they roost up in them. And uh, the fig trees, we'll find them often up in the, the fig trees. So tall trees with a, a thick canopy where they can, uh, they can camouflage themselves. They can get in among the leaves and disappear. Usually you can hear them of a, an evening, you know, at dusk or in the evening, if they're calling to each other to kind of let each other know where they are, particularly when they're nesting. But it's just like a, um, I'm not good at making imitation owl calls, but they're just a, a low double hoot. Yeah, they're kind of going, hoo, hoo. Graham said that he'd take me to see the owls, so we left our spot at the duck ponds and walked towards an area of the park known as the Bird Sanctuary. In the middle of the week, the park was humming with activity. There were cyclists, tourists, tiny children playing soccer, 
and park rangers in utes. People come from all over the world to, to have a look at our birds. And, you know, they get surprised when we bring them through Centennial Park and you walk past a flock of galahs over there or sulphur-crested cockatoos over there. There's rainbow lorikeets flying around everywhere. You know, and, you know, people from North America or Europe, you know, astounded that so many parrots are in the middle of a major city. There's such a range of bird calls as well. Yeah, oh, that's, a, and that's one of my, my curses that I don't have a musical ear, I think. You know, I have so much trouble with bird calls, and as I recently, as I've got older, I start losing that contact where I'll, I'll hear a call, and I think I know that call, but I can't think of what the bird is. You know? And as soon as I see the bird, I think, of course that's what it is. But yeah, there is such a range of calls, and there are people out there who really do have an ear for it that we're doing our bird surveys, and they're like the ones I'm doing out at Cowra. You walk through the bush with people and they'll just call out the names of birds as they're walking along. And most of the birds are high up in the trees but yeah. it's hard to see them. And they'll just call out, you know, that's a striated parlour, that's a you know, yellow tufted honey eater. That's, and you're kind of listening to all these little sounds. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's a fantastic skill to have. Eventually, he led us to the base of this gorgeous tree with a tall, dark trunk. Spot down here, you can actually actually see them. I've looked all around here trying to find a. I'll get the sunglasses off. Spot where you can get a, a view of them. You look up through that gap through the leaves, and there's a grey. There's two of them sitting together. Oh, no, I can't see it. Yeah. Hello. Just from where that light is, yeah. just go into the trees up above that. Yeah, I can. I think they're holding. There's something red there. There's something sort of like a parrot or... Yeah, is that on the lower owl? Yeah, on the lower yeah, owl. Yeah, I'm trying to get a look at his feet. It probably does have something there. So it's like moving. moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it is holding something. Yeah, can I get an angle on that? The noisy miners are flying out of there. Everything, that's one way you find the owls. All the other birds let you know where they are. While walking back to the duck ponds, we ran into Graham's birdwatching friend Steve, the Canadian, as Graham described him. Steve reminded me that you've really got to make the most of any opportunity to see a bird. And we saw two. What are you doing this afternoon? Uh, probably resting. Resting? You can't <laughs> rest. What, were you going to go into the botanic garden? Yeah, I was going to go home and get my camera and lens. And uh, the, the last three days I've been there, the two young ones are sitting in the uh, uh, Ponderosa Pine. Oh, oh, oh where's my camera? <laughs> yeah. To tell you the truth, I wasn't completely satisfied with my first encounter with the powerful owl. Those two owls were quite high in the canopy, a little too far away and tucked between branches for me to feel that I had well and truly experienced a sighting. Birdwatching seems to be a lot about being in the right place at the right time. I knew I had to give myself the best opportunity to see them again, so I did two things. One, I bought a better pair of binoculars, and two, I looked very closely at social media. 
I started to sound a bit like a private investigator. The name of a different location briefly popped up deep in the comments of a birdwatching Facebook group. And for the protection of these owls, I won't tell you exactly where my mum and I went. Though mum admits she wasn't too optimistic we were going to find them anyway. Look, I wasn't that optimistic because I'm sure they hide away somewhere very quiet and probably not on the main track that we were going through. A few hours into the walk, we came up alongside two men, Peter and Rob, as we would soon find out, both photographers, and they were watching satin bowerbirds and a nest of blue objects. I asked Peter if he'd seen a powerful owl by any chance. He said he hadn't that day, but he did give us the name of a track that we could try going up to find them. I thought it was a bit vague, but um, their directions, but I thought, oh yeah, we'll give it a go, because they were obviously very sincere and earnest bird watchers from their gear and their equipment and even the clothing they had on. They were outdoorsy people and they were passionate about their birds. So I think we both thought, let's just give it a go. You know, we're here. Let's make the most of it. Well, we were coming back from that walk saying, I think we said to them, look, we didn't have any luck. Then they questioned us and said, well, what are you doing? Are you scientists, you know, you're researchers, and you explain that you're making a podcast. When they realised that, that we weren't making a video or going to be posting it on Instagram, um, they then said, okay, we're going to show you where those owls are. He kept apologising, Peter, I think it was, look, I'm really sorry, you know, that we just wanted to protect the birds because we've seen what's happened in the past when people have posted photos of unusual birds you know thousands of people flock up to try and find them. Peter and Rob led us off track and over a stream into thick undergrowth and there roosting in the dewy darkness of this patch of forest were two adult powerful owls and three chicks along with big yellow eyes powerful owls have large furry yellow claws That looked dangerous, absolutely, but also reminded me of Big Bird from Sesame Street. One of the adults, probably the male, was holding onto a pretty torn-up ringtail possum. The tail was curling out from beneath the owl. And on a rock nearby, we found a small bundle of regurgitated bone and fur. And this time, not only did I see the owls really well, but they saw me, watched and assessed the small group of us, the fluffy chicks leaning over their branch to look at me, had the discerning, wide-eyed gaze of babies, and the adults looked a little more sleepy. Rob told me that they were a blended family, two of the chicks were adopted, and apparently that ringtail possum had been taken from one of the chicks. Dad was just minding dinner. I think it was just to share that moment with those other guys who are passionate about birds. It was just pretty special, actually. I think after my morning walks with the dog for 15 years, I used to come back every morning and tell you about all the birds that I've heard. And you you were sort of very interested right from the beginning about birds. And even back to the time at Pacific Palms, I remember taking you there as a young a young child and you were fascinated by the kookaburras that came to visit us. So um, you've always been interested in nature and birds and um, it's a passion we share together. 
When I was six, I did a speech for school about what I wanted to be when I grew up. Being the ambitious kid I was, I couldn't really just pick one, so of course I chose three. A magician, a mother, and a wildlife ranger. In all three, I think I admired the pursuit of wonder and connection, which is a lot like how I now see birdwatching. Because of where I've spent most of my life, I can map Sydney's inner west in my mind's eye. I know the paths along the so-called Cooks River. I know the main roads and shortcuts as if by instinct. Where to get good food, where my friends and family live, the changing facade of buildings far older than me. But being attentive to birds, and by which I mean completely delighting in them, widens the scope of this map of the city that I have. Not a bird's eye view, but one that is closer to root and branch, intimate, sensitive to change and sound, and absolutely worth cherishing. I was sure I wasn't alone in feeling this, so I asked my fellow bird watchers what Sydney birds have illuminated for them. I feel like living in Sydney, the nature's integrated into your daily life. And so for you to have that experience, it's it's not that you're watching it from a distance, it's you're interacting. And um, it's funny, I'll share an embarrassing story. It's very embarrassing. Um, when I first moved to Sydney, I worked at the Botanic Gardens and I'd brought my lunch and I said, you know what, I'm going to sit outside the gardens, enjoy my sandwich. And I, I started to bring my sandwich up to my mouth with my hand. And just about as I, I was just about to take my first bite, and then I felt this whoosh, and I'm just staring straight at my empty hand right up to my, my face, and I look over, and there's a kookaburra with my sandwich in its mouth, and I just could not believe it. Well, I love about birds that they're all around us. They, uh, they've got exceptional beauty when you start looking at them. They are good indicators of what's happening in the environment because if something is happening to the birds, you know that something is happening in the wider environment and they can give you an early warning of any problems we're going to have. And they're very good for your mental health to be able to just sit back and watch something that is just nice happening in front of you. So, Back when I was in uni we read an essay by the late anthropologist Deborah Rosebird about the flying foxes in metropolitan Sydney. And I remember a phrase she used that I really liked. She said, multi-species conviviality in the city. In other words, imagining and sustaining a co-living between all sorts of living beings, paying attention to song, to nest, to food, and as birdwatchers do, sharing this joy with others. So here's to the powerful owl, predator to possums, ghost bird of my heart. I hope we meet again. That story was produced by Amelia Mertha. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay respect to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land 
in association with Sin and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands, and 8CCC on Arunde and Warramungo lands. The All the Best Editorial Manager is Mel Chun, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our Production Manager. Our Social Media Producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our Community Coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And we're made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening. <laughs>